Good afternoon and thank you so much. Happy Monday to you. Thanks for being with us and hope you're having a great day. Maybe you're on a spring break. Not a great spring break travel day for people who found themselves a bit stranded. You could say by Flair Airlines. You've been hearing about this on the news. Flair Airlines having a little bit of trouble with one of their planes that was seized. One of the uh, seized several of the planes over recent days and that that has led to cancelled flights and some other uncertainty with the airline. Well, we are joined now by Leanne Coldwell, who is a passenger currently stranded in Tucson because of what's happening with Flair Airlines. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this today. Thank you for listening to our, our story down here. Well, I know you and there are certainly uh, some others that are stuck in the same situation. Can you tell us how this unfolded and what your experience was with Flair? Um, yes, uh, we flew out of Prince George on March 3rd and the that experience was just fine. Um, it was seamless. Um, we uh, There were only 40 people on board, though. Uh, of a 737. So we were like, wow, you know, not many people on this large plane. Um, So when it came to flying home on March 10th, we, our check-in time was 5 a.m. for a seven o'clock flight uh, to Prince George. Uh, When we got to the counter, we were informed that the flight would be three hours late as their crew needed to sleep. We proceeded to our gate, uh, and at 10.20, uh, when we were to uh, depart at 10.40, uh, at 10.20, the people at the gate uh, informed us the flight was cancelled. The crew was sick, and there was no replacement. And so at this um, point, sorry, had, had the news broke or was there any news of this plane being seized or were there, were there questions about what was actually happening? No, no. no. All right. So at that point, so they've told you then that the flight is cancelled, that the crew became ill, that there wasn't a crew for the plane. So what happened then? So we went back to the check-in counter Um, The employees there had very little to offer. They gave us a phone number to call to make arrangements for hotels that Flair would cover. And they had no other information aside from that. Um, they, They put some crackers and some bottled water on the counter and their hands were tied. So what did you do at that point? Yeah. Yeah, so everybody was gathered around, and um, uh, we all got on our phones and uh, called the number, um, and it took, you know, they had a high call volume, so we were there for hours. Um, Finally, an email did come through uh, to our phone, assuring us that we would have hotels and uh, meal vouchers until the 17th. When we were due to depart, they had rebooked us on the flight on the 17th of March. Um, This was a new flight out of Prince George that uh, departs only once a week. So there were no other options that were sooner than a week. Hmm, So once, 
And once we got that, we did get a hotel voucher from there. Um, We were one of the lucky ones that actually when we went to the hotel, which was 15 miles away, um, they did actually have a reservation for us. There were some that weren't as lucky. And we stayed the one night. Uh, We were assured that we would get an email the next day of another hotel. And um, at 10 o'clock, when it was supposed to come through, nothing came through. At 11 o'clock, we had to check out. Still nothing. We got on the phone. Um, We also didn't get any meal vouchers for that night's stay. The hotel didn't have any. They don't recognize them. So um, we did, after two hours on the phone, secure another confirmation from the Flair people with a Flair confirmation number. We drove 14 miles to that hotel, and we had to rent a car. Uh, That was just the reality of the situation. You would be stranded otherwise and, and also incur you know, costs of moving all over the city. So um, we got to the next hotel. They had no record of a reservation and said what Flair gave us was not a hotel confirmation number. Um, We waited three hours uh, until 3 p.m. with no luck. Hmm. And nothing from Flair, yeah. So at that point, then you're you're at a hotel. You don't actually have a reservation. Uh, trying to get in touch with Flair, I'm guessing to to find out what's going on. Were you able to to reach anybody or get any answers at that point? No. In the high call volume, uh, there I, apparently there was bad weather in Vancouver, and on their uh, recording, it was talking about the Vancouver passengers. We were yesterday's news, <laughs> so. Um, we, we just were on hold for hours. Um, when we did get that confirmation, there was another uh, single passenger with us, and she never got a confirmation. We were assured that they were getting us off the street into this hotel the second night, and we could, you know, the three of us, we were to have two separate rooms, the three of us would at least be able to get off the street and into a hotel. And uh, that didn't happen, and she has not ever heard from Flair again. Neither have we. So for the for the rest of the week, so um, we had a rental car. Um, we came down to visit family in Mesa, so um, we took uh, Dana, uh, who was traveling alone and very stressed about the whole situation, and we drove back up to Mesa to stay with family, um, just to uh, you know uh, try and have a little less stressful week. And we booked our own hotel the night before um, to fly out to, uh, you know, the next day to Prince George. So we're, we're, we're aware we're going to have to, you know, pay our hotel. Flair also did say they would cover $200 Canadian per night for hotels and $60 per person Canadian for meals. And we could keep our receipts and try and submit them. But with, with the chat among the group that was there, we were starting to hear stories uh, that we were worried and uh, not really trusting that we're <laughs> going to be successful with uh, reimbursements after this is all over either. Right. Like, we don't feel very confident. So as it stands now, then, it sounds like, uh, like you said, so you're kind of on your own as far as paying for food, the rental car uh, for the hotel. And then d- do you get a sense then and that you will be able to get that flight to, or what happens next? 
Um, I've already been searching uh, flights to Vancouver out of Tucson um, for that day in the afternoon as a backup plan. Um, That's my today's job to get on with some um, other airlines, um, not discount ones, (laughs) and, and, you know, uh, just see if they'll share, you know, are, are you down to the last five seats? You know, so we can sort of map out what our what our plan is if they do cancel again. Right, and and sorry, when were you supposed to be coming home back to Prince George? March the tenth. The tenth. So, and at that end, an extra week's parking, extra weeks uh, house sitter. You know, lots of costs incurred. We're fortunate. We're we're retired. We just uh, recently retired. Um, you know, we've, we've seen another uh, family of four struggle and um, just, you know, now hoping that they're going to uh, be able to recoup their costs that Flair is promising. And so, Leah, for who, oh, yeah. so I'm, I'm just curious, but just before I let you go, uh, with something like this that has happened and, and we're, we are learning a little bit more about the aircraft that was seized uh, by by uh, the, this other company. Could Flair have, if they had acted differently, or, or, or do you think, is there a way Flair could have reacted to this and communicated with you that, that would have made things, not that anybody ever wants this to happen, but would have made it at least a bit more manageable for you? Absolutely. 40 of us, one person at Flair could have uh, taken care of that flight and, um, you know, uh, made, made a block uh, at a hotel for the passengers and not this piecemeal every day you have to wait for an email or every day you've got to get on the phone for three, four hours and ruin another day trying to track down their promises. So they needed to be on top of it. Um, the only way you could get a hold of getting a hotel was by email. They had no contact number for the people that had the power to give us accommodations and meals. So they just needed to have a liaison with the company, take care of us, and not send us 14, 15 miles in every direction of Tucson uh, every day with only an hour to get there uh, before checkout time. All right. Well, Leanne, we're going to continue following along and finding out how things unfold, what happens next. But I appreciate you taking the time and talking with me today and joining the show. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Jill. Well, this is some concerning news on the North Shore, and it is still unclear exactly how much sewage has entered the Capilano River. This after a leak was detected in the Fullerton Avenue area. The District of North Vancouver has reported that the sewage was apparently leaking from leaving a private property and getting into the river through a storm drain outfall pipe. So what does this mean for the area? Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Wilson Williams, Squamish First Nation elected councillor. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. What is the, the situation there now that you know, as far as what we know is happening with this leak? Yeah, well, we're, we're obviously quite concerned over the weekend and when we found out, but uh, we're, we're in a better place now. The property owners uh, responded and actually uh, 
we're working with them directly now um, in regards to a short-term plan and uh, more of a long-term plan. Do you know then how long this leak was, was how long it was happening before it was discovered? Yeah, you know, I being on the site a few times over the weekend, I I can only best assume based off of the um, the look of not just the uh, ecological effects, but also the water as well. There's a lot of stainage on the uh, on the rocks that created a pathway downstream. So I assume uh, that it's been going on longer than uh, the seven eight days since we've become aware. And and how was it that you and others became aware that this was uh, happening? Yeah, uh, someone had contacted the District of North Vancouver and they um, put us uh, on notice as well around the same time they found out. And um, right from there, uh, we've activated our rights and title department and our guardians uh, as well, but also contacted the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the province, and uh, the Capilano fish hatchery too. So we all been activated over the weekend, and now finally we got a good response and activation from the property owners. And did you get the sense from the property owners? Was this something as well that w- that was news to them? They just didn't realize that this was happening. Yeah, that I can't determine, but I feel like they, you know. There's six buildings and towers in that area, and I feel like uh, they didn't want to take accountability at the first-hand knowledge. But um, it's in an isolated area, but there's a lot of construction going on as well. Mm. So for us, the first thing was mitigate the raw sewage leak, and then we can deal with uh, other matters as we move forward and look to see who's fully accountable for this uh, sewage leak. Right. You mentioned that you could see evidence of this on some of the rocks and on the, the waterway on the riverbank there. Can, can you um, describe a little more or when you talk about the ecological damage, potentially, how much damage are we looking at? Yeah, that's we have we have water samples that have been taken by the, uh, the ministry um, on Friday. Uh, we're awaiting those results, but visually, you can see what looks like uh, moss or, you know, um, uh, growth um, on the rocks and the debris out, uh, uh, during the pathway to the river, um, which is an active sort of storm drain. So you can see the refuse <laughs> visibly, but once you get to the area, you get the the stench and the smell is really really strong Hmm. and this is an area too for people that might not be familiar with it so this is an area i mean it's uh, there's some sunshine today there would likely be people wouldn't there with pets and or people walking and being out and in that area yeah it's an active trail for for uh local residents it's a beautiful area for people with their families and pets or people that are out jogging but also like the impacts it has directly with the Squamish nation you know we've we've had a lot of people um very concerned because it's um has some deep spiritual and emotional impacts to our community as we uh frequent the area but also for ceremonial ceremonial use we use it for our, our people that do bathing and stuff like that as well and and we fish year round and uh, we have residents and, you know, the general public is the biggest concern, but also the ocean life too. 
Right. And, and so do you have any idea at this point how, how big of a cleanup we're looking at right now? And, and in the meantime, are people being told to avoid the area? Yeah, uh, we put signage up ourselves and there's signage up at the uh, area right now as well where, uh, you know, we're telling people not to drink, use or get into the water until uh, we've been clearly um, advised otherwise that it's safe. And and like you said, too, kind of dealing with these things now, uh, the, the most pressing issues and then uh, looking at accountability or looking at how this could have happened for such a, a long period of time. I mean, is that th- that's got to be a bit more than concerning. I mean, that it, that it wasn't just a day or it wasn't something that that happened and people were on top of it, that this was happening for what appears to be several days. Yeah, it's it's quite concerning, you know, not to pull full blame onto the property owners. You know, we're in a time and place in the world where especially we're concerned of what's happening on our traditional territories. But, you know, in the surrounding areas with aging infrastructure, um, you know, people might not be well aware of, you know, the, the impacts and uh, of that aging infrastructure will cause and the sensitivity that uh, may occur from these kind of uh you know, whether it was damaged to from the construction, we don't know. But at the same time, there's there needs to be more of a plan than just sort of diverting blame needs to look at uh, mitigating, you know, the issue at first hand. Because, you know, look at the bigger picture of, you know, the we're looking at protecting fresh water, but we're also looking at doing our part for climate action. Right. And Wilson, you mentioned as well that the water samples have been taken. And so, sorry, when are you hoping that, that to get those results or to get a better idea of exactly what's happening in the water? Yeah, uh, just personally, uh, I was hoping yesterday, but we're hoping it within the next day or two. All right. And in the meantime, like you said, so signage has gone up and it sounds like if you're in that area, you can see and uh, likely smell that something is uh, not right on that part of the water. But is it pretty obvious? Do you think if people are in the area, they'll know uh, to avoid that area, at least for the time being? Yeah, exactly. You know, like we 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 started to contact um, and create some public awareness on Friday. It didn't seem like a lot of the locals in the area knew about it. But I can tell you by yesterday being on the site as well that uh, everyone was aware and looking at the site itself. So, I mean, that is great news because people are well well aware that they, they shouldn't be in the water or have their, you know, even as their dogs, you know, pulling, making sure they're, they're, they don't go in there and, uh, you know, um, are, are at a health risk, right? So, and... It's quite concerning, but I'm, I'm glad we're in the mitigation stage of this short term where they're actually stopped the leakage now. And there's uh, engineer uh, contractors on site today as well, and they're vacuuming out the the raw sewage and uh, we'll be removing it and the cleanup has started. All right. And Wilson, can you just remind us exactly kind of where this is, if people are hearing this and again, what area to avoid? Yeah, so it's located um, in the Woodcroft residences, just um, along, just off of Marine Drive in North Vancouver, um, probably uh, one or two minutes off of Lionsgate Bridge, if you go north. All right. I know it's been a busy few days. So Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time and for coming on the show to update us on this.
my pleasure. Thanks so much. You may have heard some of these numbers on the news. BC Hydro has put out a new report. It takes a look at what we changed in our daily routines, maybe things that were temporary, other things that have stuck around three years after the declaration of the pandemic. This is a report. It's called Powering the Permanent New Normal, How COVID-19 Changed British Columbians' Daily Habits and Electricity Use. Joining us to talk more about some of the findings is Kevin Aquino, BC Hydro spokesperson. Kevin, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Some of these, I think, will probably seem quite obvious. Others, uh, maybe people will question why uh, those habits have become permanent. But can you take us through what specifically were you looking at when it comes to energy use and electricity use in BC? Yeah, of course. So this month does mark three years since the COVID-19 pandemic was declared. And our recent data shows that um, changes to daily habits has resulted in weekday electricity use peaking slightly later in the morning and slightly earlier in the evening. And this shift can um, largely be attributed to some British Columbians permanently changing their daily routines because of societal changes like working from home. And which probably isn't a huge surprise for anybody that that is still working from home or shifted to that. So using maybe a bit more energy in that scenario. I I found it interesting, too, though. So that kind of also went into uh, cooking and people uh, maybe you're you're cooking more at home, more meals, making uh, making those at home. How much of an impact does does it show or, or, or do you think that's having? Yeah, so with no commute, um, many said that they are sleeping in later on the weekdays, even showering less. And um, because folks are working from home now and have adopted the remote work model, they're able to do chores like um, doing laundry and cooking during the day. So that's why we've seen an evening peak arriving earlier between 6 and 9 p.m. instead of 7 and 10 p.m. Right. Which, yeah, that makes uh, makes a lot of sense that you don't have to kind of cram everything into the, the few hours you might have when you've commuted and you're back home, but you can kind of pepper it throughout the day. Exactly. Um, when you talk about, I think the one that is sticking out to people as well is this whole idea of, of people are showering less. Uh, do we know how much less or what has kind of gone into this trend? Yeah. So at the start of the pandemic, we saw about 14% of British Columbians showering less. And it's it's basically at par when you compare it to the results from 2023 and about 15% of British Columbians are, have claimed that they are showering less as a result from as a result of working from home. Right. So it's that you might just be on Zoom or you might not be around other humans that, that <laughs> therefore you, you just don't need to have that daily shower. Yeah, exactly. So some folks... Um, Me in particular, I I do like to shower in the morning. So on the days that I don't uh, work out of the office and I am working from home, sometimes I just uh, wait until later in the day to take my shower. Okay, but that's still not showering less. That's just showering at a different time, isn't it? Uh, For me, yes. But uh, the results that we did come back with is that we did see some British Columbians, about 15 percent, have indicated that they have um, remained 
um, with the, remained uh, with their habits of showering less, if not showering at all during the um, during these remote workdays. Interesting. All right, we're, we are going to open up the phones in a little bit, and I'm curious if people have opinions on that. Uh, one of the other uh, ones that you looked at, and that was streaming services. And again, if we look back and look at that review mirror of when there was no going out, really, there were th- things were closed and there wasn't a lot happening as far as social lives. Not a huge surprise that we watched more TV, but how is it then as far as people are still uh, having that reliance on streaming services and doing that? Yeah, so when we last surveyed customers in September 2020, we did see some habits change, and in particular to watching and streaming uh, more TV and movies. At the start of the pandemic, we saw about 29% of customers um, streaming, whereas now we're seeing about 56% of customers who are streaming um, TV and more movies. And I don't know if this survey asked the questions about this, but are people doing things that 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 they know don't use as much energy, uh, being that maybe, the, you know, you're at home more, so you, maybe the lights are on more, or, or if you're working at home, your computer or your streaming services, are people focusing more on that, doing that, but then also finding ways that, that their energy bills don't shoot up? Yeah, of course. So I would like to note that overall residential power use has remained relatively the same. What has changed is when and how customers are using the power. So customers are cooking dinner earlier or ordering takeout more and watching um, and using their streaming services. And that's why we're seeing more of a later peak in the morning and earlier evening peak. Okay, and that makes sense. Um, I, I noticed as well that it talks about cooking with smaller appliances, that air fryers, slow cookers use uh, use less energy. I was a little surprised by that. I guess I shouldn't be. I, I I have an air fryer that I got a couple of Christmases ago. I guess just because it's it's louder than the, the conventional oven and it's more of a presence, I just assume it's using more energy. But I was pleasantly uh, surprised to see how much less it actually uses. Yeah, so when we do recommend um, cooking with smaller appliances, such as air fryers and slow cookers, and to give you some background, they use up to at least up to 75% less energy than a conventional oven. Which is a huge difference if we're talking about, like you said, too, with more people cooking at home and doing it more often, that would add up quickly. It would, um, but there are some other tips and tricks that you can do while you are working from home um, in order for you to keep your energy bills down and save on electricity. So if you are working from home, we also recommend using energy-saving features on your office equipment. So when you set it to the mode, uh, the energy-saving modes on devices such as your computers and laptops, you can save around 70% less energy as well. Hmm. And, and are more people doing that, do you think, or do you get the sense that more people are doing that? Right now, um, when we did look at the load, when we, com- when we compared the electricity consumption, overall residential power use has remained the same. Right. What we have been seeing is that the change is when and how people use power. So that's why we're seeing later um, peaks in the morning and earlier in the evening. All right. Well, it's uh, interesting findings uh, from this new survey uh, done by uh, for and for BC Hydro. Kevin, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks for joining us to go through some of the numbers. Thanks for having me.
We are going to talk a little bit about Canadian music and what to watch for at the upcoming Juno Awards. They are taking place in Edmonton this year. Some of Canada's top music talents will be there. And joining us now, though, to give us a bit of a look ahead is Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. Eric, thank you so much for being with us again. No problem, and this is what you can look forward to, a short man with long hair and glasses freezing (laughs) as it's minus 15 in Edmonton. So um, (laughs) that's uh, what people can look forward to, along with some music and artists. Right, yes, the the music as well. Uh, Yeah, nothing against Edmonton, but holding an award show there when it's still very, very wintry, it's not probably not everyone's top choice on locations, but that's where it's going to be happening and uh, where the musicians and others will gather. Uh, So what are you looking at, though, as far as uh, who do you think is going to kind of stand out? Yeah, I think as a music geek, I love when awards are broken and records are breaking. Um, The weekend is now tied with Brian Adams for the second most Juno Awards in Canadian music history. He won four at a gala industry dinner um, on Saturday night, and that gives him 21 Junos in his history that has only lasted for less than a decade. If you think about that, it's a pretty astonishing. Um, Anne Murray, uh, lead doll artist with 25, and of course she was around for many decades, as is Brian Adams. So the fact that The weekend was able to do this um, in just nine and a half short years uh, is nothing else than, than incredible. But I think, you know, you're going to see not just the biggest Canadian artists um, pretty much walk home with, with some sort of trophy. Um, but when you're talking about The weekend, um, when you're um, uh, Nickelback, um, those artists are some of the biggest musicians on the planet. Um, Nickelback is being inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and rightfully deserved, and they're going to be um, inducted with the help of, of uh, Connor McDavid of the Edmonton Oilers and Ryan Reynolds, who's going to be appearing on video. And uh, the fact that the band comes from Hannah, Alberta, um, was a, makes it a really special moment for the group because, look, they're one of the nicest people that you'll ever want to meet, and they sold over 55 million albums around the world. So this is so well-deserving of it. Oh, yeah. No, uh, definitely. And and a bit of a different format this year, too, isn't it? As far as uh, they didn't want it overlapping with the Oscars, which makes sense, even though they're very different shows. Uh, The Oscars probably would be uh, pulling a much bigger audience. But uh, how do you think that different format or, or is that different format even really having an impact? It's not really having so much of an impact. You know, what is mostly important when it comes to the broadcast part of the Junos is which awards are going to be given out um, in the arena. So this year they're giving out the Breakthrough Artist of the Year, the Fan Choice Album of the Year, Rap Album, and Contemporary R&B Recording. The R&B and the rap part of it is interesting to me because that would never have happened 10 or 15 years ago when rock was the meat and potatoes of what the music is industry was really all about. The fact that TikTok has kind of allowed um, bedroom artists to be successful worldwide and make their own music and not waiting for a record label to come along. They can go directly and find their fans and find their community. And the fact that the Junos are highlighting um, not just those styles of music, but they're also acknowledging the 50th anniversary of rap music um, with an all-star kind of cast of of musicians, uh, including Cardinal Officiel and Maestro Fresh West. 
So the fact that, you know, this is the new kind of style um, that the Junos has taken hold. It's, they've been listening to the fans and watching the chart and realizing that because it's a TV show, they need to pull in the viewers. And that's probably why Simo Louie from, uh, from the Marvel uh, superhero uh, series, um, he's going to be back as hosting. Right. And I think a lot of people will be looking forward to that for sure. Uh, do you think, Eric, is there is there an argument to be made that, yes, the, these shows do showcase the best Canadian talent and maybe you'll see musicians that you didn't know all that much about in addition to the better known names. But but is there still a need for a Canadian specific show in that couldn't don't Canadians? I mean, we just saw a Canadian win yep. the Oscar the first time a Canadian has taken the the, um, the, the best actor Oscar, yep. and, and Canadians do great up against American musicians and other musicians. Do we need this particular award show? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, there were over ninety artists that. Um, were first-time nominees for the Junos, and that is a huge celebration not only to those artists, but the producers and the engineers and the family and the friends and all those people who believed in them and those people who didn't believe in them. This is kind of their little bit of a badge of honor, and it helps create even a larger industry. Getting recognized by your own community in your own country um, is still a big deal. Maybe you know there's a musician or an actor who doesn't really grow up thinking about wanting to win a Juno or wanting to win, uh, you know, a, a Genie or a Gemini. Um, but this is, was for a lot of people, their first taste of success. It's their first acknowledgement and door opening to meet the rest of the industry, to hang out at the gala, to meet the other record labels and the managers and the booking agents and all the people that can bring them to another level. And it's really, really hard to compete when there's 120,000 new songs being uploaded each and every day on Spotify and 150,000 for New Music Friday. It's hard to compete with the Beatles and the Stones for the same eyeballs and ears as everybody else. So any acknowledgement that they're doing a great job and that you're on the right track is, uh, is really important when you're first starting out. No, that ma- that makes a lot of sense. So, will there be then kind of lesser known names, maybe that you know about, that you're hoping others will will get to see and hear? And this will be a way for them to get their music out to an audience, maybe that doesn't know who they are. Yeah, you, you know, certainly there's going to be a lot of people on Twitter, on Facebook, going, "Who? Like, bring back." Rush, bring back all these people. Um, but rest assured, though, that if you haven't heard about them, maybe your kids have, or maybe those are going to be the performers that are going to be playing in arenas and, and stadiums in the next couple of years, or or even the uh, folk festival. You know, if they can, um, you know, come back around from it. But you know, when you're talking about um, artists like um, you know Lauren Spencer Smith, who um, is up for for Artist of the Year, she's huge on TikTok and huge with the kids. She's kind of in the same realm as a as a Taylor Swift, um, she's getting airplay pretty much all over the world. Um, and, and, you know, e- even with even with some artists like Angelique Francis, who is a blues bassist from Ottawa, she's just 23, and she's the third um, woman in a row to win uh, the best blues album after men won it for 13 straight years. So maybe so much it's not an artist in specific, maybe you kind of got to look for those little, um, those little 
threads and um, that tell a little bit of a story. You know, some of the breakthrough groups of the year, they're barely under the age of 24, and that's a really good thing. That means that the music industry and the music is where it should be. Pop music should always be the music of the young and the vibrant and the dangerous, and the Junos um, are no exception. So it's going to be a lot of fun all around. Uh, You mentioned uh, as well that it is easier now for people to use social media to get their music out there, to to get more uh, ears listening to it. Do do you think that also, does that influence who gets nominated and what music gets noticed? Yeah, you know, we're certainly not talking about radio spins or gold and platinum albums or even tour dates when we're talking about successes. Now it's um, sadly or happily um, the amount of followers that you have, the the amount of shares that you have, the amount of likes that you have. And we can go on and on about the mental health anguish that Gen Z and millennials are facing every day trying to live a fulfilling life on social media. But you have to go to where your audience is. If you're a blues artist or a folk artist, you know, your audience is still primarily on Facebook and you can reach people that way. If you're playing pop or hip hop or rap, you have to be on Instagram and TikTok and you can find your audience um, a lot easier than try to knock down doors at, at radio stations across the country when they have their own local artists to take care of, when there is no touring to be had for a lot of these artists. And quite frankly, if you're a pop musician under the age of 25, 30, your audience have might not even seen a live concert ever thanks to COVID. So you have to kind of figure out who your audience is and how they consume music. And it looks like that social media and reaching the audience directly is going to be here to stay rather than wondering if you need to make CDs and get them in the local record store. Mm. And uh, Eric, one other question. You mentioned uh, that Nickelback getting into the music hall, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, uh, rightly so. Why is Nickelback so divisive? <laughs> um, it, it's it's pretty much started when they signed a record deal with a label called Roadrunner, and Roadrunner was huge in the metal and hard rock world. Once Nickelback started to become really popular, the record label decided to put a lot of budget into them, trying to break them around the world, which angered a lot of hard rock and metal fans, and that's where it kind of really stems from, which is bizarre, because they're no different music-wise and, and pushing their own envelope than ACD ACDC has never done a ballad before, um, and Nickelback tends to stay in the road um, that they do really, really well. And for the amount of people that love them, um, far, far outweighs the amount of people that can be snarky online. I think, you know, some of those people who hate anybody online, I think that they just have maybe a little bit too much more time on their hands. (laughs) All right, uh, Eric, we will leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Sounds good.